pray one more time, shall we? Our Father in heaven, you've just been reminded man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, you, our Lord God Almighty. And so we pray that you would feed us through your living words now. Nourish us through the truths and through the beauty of the gospel. Move our hearts to sing your praises to you and to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever feel like you are running dry? You know that you are a Christian because you're trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And you're trying by the power of the Holy Spirit to live for him. But there's something that just doesn't seem quite right. Because you know that as a Christian, you should praise God. And yet for you, that often feels forced. You stand up and you sing the songs and you say the creeds and the confessions with everyone else here at church. But it doesn't seem to mean as much for you as it does for the people around you the truths that you're singing about and speaking about and hearing about, they just don't seem to connect with your heart. They don't seem real. And you know that Christians should make Jesus known to others, but again, that feels so unnatural. You've kind of lost interest in that. Opportunities don't really seem to come along. And to be honest, you don't really share Jesus at all. And when you do, it's kind of out of guilt. Are you in a place today where praise feels fake and evangelism feels forced? You wish that it was flowing naturally, but actually you're running dry. Well, if that is you, then perhaps church itself is something of a struggle because it just seems to heighten that sense of disconnect feels like each Sunday you're trying to squeeze out some worship that's not really there. And quite often the preacher will then encourage you to share your faith with others and you fear that that's just going to be another thing to add to your to-do list and to your sense of guilt. Well, Isaiah chapter 12 is all about praise and about proclamation. But here's something really, really important. In this passage, those things are not commands. It's not telling us what we must do. Rather, it's simply describing what God's saved people will do. Verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you. Verse 4. You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, make known his deeds among the peoples. Something has happened to these people, which means that in that day... They sort of overflow with both praise and proclamation. So what had happened? What is that day that is being foretold? Well, as we'll see, that day was the day of salvation. It was the experience of God's salvation that would naturally overflow into praise 
and proclamation. Let me say that again, because this is really the key. It's as God's people experience God's salvation, that's what overflows in praise and proclamation. Isaiah 12 simply describes what will happen when, verse 3, we draw water from the wells of salvation. One of my favourite books as a child was The Tiger Who Came to Tea. I think we might even have a a picture up, potentially, of... There he is, The Tiger Who Came to Tea. Anyone read this book? Yeah, one of my favourites. If not, you're missing out. Um, It's about my level. Uh, It's a a child's book. But it's a wonderful story about a tiger who turns up at um, a family home during tea time, and he ends up eating their whole dinner, and then he doesn't stop there. He eats all of the food in the house, he he drinks all of the drinks in the house, and then do you remember what he did? He drinks all of the water from the taps, which is a a kind of charming image, because unless you're on a water tank, it's impossible to drain all of the water from the taps. We are privileged to live in a time and in a place where when you turn on the taps, you can expect the water to just keep flowing and to keep flowing. And so it is with the wells of salvation. God's salvation is a never-ending spring. And as we dip our buckets in, as we see and experience more and more of God's saving work, in all of its richness, in all of its implications, that's when praise and proclamation will naturally follow. Just as Jesus says, If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. So it is that the more we draw from the wells of salvation, the more we will overflow in praise and proclamation. And so for that reason, I want to invite you this morning to pick up your bucket. Um, If we don't want to run dry, then we need to keep going back to this spring. And so this morning, instead of just telling you to praise and telling you to proclaim... Instead, I would love us to draw joyfully from these wells of salvation. Let's drink deeply of God, our Saviour, and we'll see how that naturally overflows to personal praise and to public proclamation. Those are the the two parts of this song that we have here in uh, in Isaiah chapter 12. You can see that the, the chapter is broken up into two parts. So the kind of first verse of the song, if you like, is... Uh, verses 1 and 2, and you've got the second verse in verses 4 and 5 and 6, and in between you've got that wells image that we find in, in verse 3. And so those, that's how the song kind of works. It starts with the first chunk about personal praise. Personal praise. Look at verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Isaiah was a prophet, someone who spoke God's word to God's people. And in the first 11 chapters, he has spoken a serious message of warning. God was angry with his people because of their rebellion, because of their unfaithful idolatry, because of their proud sin. Like a spurned lover and a rejected king, God was rightly angry 
and judgment was coming. Jerusalem would be attacked, the people would be exiled, and yet, the repeated refrain of chapters 9 and 10, and yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. God's rebellious people were under God's right anger. But along with this judgment, there was also hope. In these dark chapters, there are beacons of light over there in the distance. Promises that beyond exile, God's people would return and be restored. In the previous chapter, chapter 11, we hear that though the tree of Israel has been chopped down to a stump, yet from that stump a shoot will rise. A branch will bear fruit. There's this mysterious figure described, someone who will be a spirit-filled judge bringing justice, someone who would slay the wicked, who would bring reconciliation to the whole of creation and would gather his people in to a glorious rest. That is the day that Isaiah is talking about here in verse 1. It is in that day that you will say... I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. That day is the day of salvation. That day is the glorious day when God's right anger against his rebellious people has finally been turned away, when his upraised hand has been lowered. So what exactly is that day that Isaiah foretells? When is that day? Well, like many prophecies, uh, the day of salvation has different layers of fulfillment. So in the first instance, when God's people did return from exile, no doubt they sang this song. They saw it as a day of salvation. Punishment finished, anger replaced by comfort. And yet, not everything matched up with that day that Isaiah describes. In fact, some of this description of that day points even us forward to the day when our risen Lord Jesus returns. That day when he will bring reconciliation to the whole of creation. When the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, we will sing God's praise the praise of his salvation. And yet there's another sense in which that day, this day that's being described, has already dawned in the coming of our Lord Jesus, his first coming. After all, that day that Isaiah prophesied is a day when the root of Jesse appeared. This man standing in the line of King David, this spirit-filled judge who would care for the poor and defeat the oppressor. The one who would restore peace and gather his people in. And that's what Jesus came to do. The day of salvation has already come. In fact, that day is today. We are in that day. We are this side of God's great rescue that Isaiah foretold and the return from exile was just a shadow of. Isaiah 12 is a song speaking about now, today. The uh, uh, 13th, is it? 13th of November, 2022. That is what Isaiah is talking about. It is a song about Jesus. And so we can sing, verse 1, I will give thanks to you, Lord. 
For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. I have three small children. Sometimes I get angry with them. Uh, Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not so good reasons. Uh, And when I get angry with my kids, they get really upset. They... um, they cry, they cry, they cry. There is a painful distance in our relationship. They hate to be under my anger. But you know there's something really precious about that moment of reconciliation? When the issue, whatever it is, has been dealt with, and I go over to them and I give them a big cuddle and a big kiss, and they nestle into my chest and they know it's okay. Daddy's not angry with me anymore. Unlike me, God's anger is never wrong. It's never uncontrolled. It's never disproportionate. Never selfish. It's always totally justified. It always comes from a place of pure love. But he was angry. Personally angry against each one of us because of our rebellion, our unfaithfulness, our proud sin. We have cheated on our lover. We have slapped the king in the face. Someone got in trouble this week for throwing eggs at our new King Charles. What we have done is infinitely worse. We rightly deserve God's perfect anger. And yet if we are trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, we can say, we can sing, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. My friend, is this your experience? I don't know you very well, but I'm sure that some of us here this morning may not yet be Christians. Some of us have not trusted in Jesus. And if that's you, then I need to warn you that you are still under the anger of God. It has not yet been turned away. You will experience that forever punishment that you deserve for treason. But the God who is salvation is available to us this morning. If you stop trusting in yourself, if you trust Jesus instead, then you will be able to join in with this song of praise and say, your anger has turned away that you might comfort me. That painful distance in our relationship is no more. God's arms are wrapped around us in a grace embrace. And it's not because, you know, God's got over his grump or he's calmed down a bit now or because we've said sorry and now we can get off our time out. But rather because Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. 1 John 2 verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. Through his death on the cross, in my place, through the offering of that perfect sacrifice, the perfect anger of God has been turned away from me because it has fallen on him. I will give thanks to you, Lord. Verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. Not just that God can organize salvation or God provides salvation. He is my salvation. God himself is the means by which I am preserved from the harm that I deserve. And so, verse 2, I will trust and not be afraid. 
if we are those who know that we deserve God's anger, and yet that anger has been removed and we've received comfort, if we are now nestled into the arms of God, do you know there's no need to fear? We can trust and not tremble because, verse 2, the Lord God is my strength. The Lord, the Lord himself, using that covenant name of God, Yahweh, the only true God, Yahweh, the faithful promise maker, Yahweh, the rescuer, the Lord, the Lord himself is no longer set against me. He is a refuge around me. He is my strength and my song. That's a direct quote from Exodus chapter 15. You might know the story. God's people had suffered 400 years of oppression and slavery in Egypt. And finally they were free. But as they start that desert journey, there's a cloud of dust on the horizon getting bigger and bigger. The thump of hooves gets louder and louder as an army approaches. Pharaoh has changed his mind again. And now they're trapped between a sea of water and a sea of spears. It looks like it's all over. But the angel of the Lord stands between his enemy and his people, an unbreakable wall of cloud and fire protecting them all night long until the path through the sea has been blown open. The people walk through on dry ground and when the Egyptians try to follow, the walls come crashing down. The enemy is swept away and the people burst out in praise. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Of course they burst out into praise. What other thing could they do in that situation? It was an overflow. No other response is possible to so great a salvation. And now Isaiah says, there is a day when you will sing that song again. At the end of chapter 11, their return from exile is pictured in Exodus imagery. Crossing water on dry ground, just like when you came up from Egypt. When you return from exile, you will burst into song again. But the singing doesn't stop there. Because Exodus was a great rescue. The return from exile was brilliant. But our salvation is even better. Friends, we live in that day when Yahweh has made himself known as Yeshua. In Jesus, the Lord has become my salvation. And so with great joy, we draw water from the wells of salvation and we burst into song saying, I will give thanks to you, Lord. Of course we do. What a great salvation. Have you tasted it yourself? Have you trusted Jesus yourself? Personal praise. But the thing about this personal praise is that it doesn't stay personal for long. It overflows into public proclamation. That's the second part of the song, starting in verse 4. And there are a couple, of, a couple of things that are different about this second half of the song. The first is who's singing. So the first part is a solo. Um, it's the song of an individual. So the you in verse 1, you will say, that you is in the singular. In that day, you singular will say. It's a lone voice. You were angry with me. You have comforted me. The Lord is my strength, my song. 
But from verse 3, the yous become plural. So the first part is a solo. In the second, the choir joins in. This is a song for the community of God's people. Our salvation, our praise, our proclamation, it's never just an individual thing. So the first difference is who's singing. The second difference is who they're singing to. So the first part is, um, is to the Lord. The second is actually addressed to the Lord's people. Look at verse 6. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. The first is personal praise to the Lord. The second is public proclamation to one another. And so Isaiah says, in that day, that day of salvation, the day that is today, God's people will sing praises to God, but they will also sing to one another. They will tell each other to give praise to the Lord. And they will tell each other to tell others. Uh, there's an outward focus here in these verses. Verse 4, you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Worship bubbles over into evangelism. We praise God to God, and we praise God to others. You see, it's not wrong to tell each other to praise and to proclaim, but that all flows from an experience of salvation. So you see how it snowballs? Um, I experience God's salvation, and as I, as I draw deeply from those wells of salvation, it overflows. It overflows, so I praise God, but also I proclaim him to others. Maybe I proclaim him to my friend Rich, and I say to Rich, you should praise God, and you should proclaim him to others. And so Rich experiences that, that salvation himself. He praises God, and he proclaims it to his friend Mark. And Mark, he says to Mark, you need to proclaim God. Praise him and proclaim him. And so Mark praises God and proclaims him to all of his friends, including me. He comes back to me and he says, Luke, keep praising and keep proclaiming. And so it snowballs, it snowballs, it gathers momentum until we are a community of God's people stirring one another up to keep praising and to keep proclaiming. This is one of the reasons that we gather together for church. One of the reasons why it's great to be together physically, if at all possible, so that we can tell each other, verse 6, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Because of who he is, because of what he has done, we praise him and we proclaim him. This is what will happen when we draw water from the wells of salvation. Can you see how both of these things are an overflow from an experience of God's great salvation? Isaiah doesn't say, on that day, that day of great salvation, you must remember to worship. You must remember to tell others about this. He doesn't need to. He says, no, on that day, you will say this will be a natural overflow. Praise and proclamation. Honoring God's name and extending God's fame both flow from a clear-eyed recognition of his glorious salvation. The key to vibrant worship and explosive evangelism 
is a growing grasp and increasing experience of God's great salvation. As we get our buckets and as we draw water from the wells of salvation, as we drink deeply of God our Savior, this is what will overflow. And that's how we're going to reach our community. We know that as God's people, the church, we exist for mission. We exist to reach out to those around us with the good news of Jesus. And you know, that won't happen just by having a a kind of rousing motivational speech each Sunday morning, being told to pull up our socks and tell everyone we know about Jesus and to do some more praising along the way. We're not going to effectively reach our colleagues and our neighbours and our classmates by guilt-tripping each other into evangelism. Or through a dazzling array of inventive initiatives and outreach programs. Now, this is how it's going to happen. As we draw joyfully from the wells of salvation, as we see more clearly and experience more deeply what God has done for us in Jesus, then no one will be able to stop us from overflowing. The best evangelists are ordinary people who love Jesus and just can't keep quiet. Uh, Rebecca is one of the members at Silver Street Church. She's a student in her mid-twenties from an Ethiopian family, um, and she loves Jesus. She feeds on his word. In fact, just the other week, she spoke to me about how she could have more fruitful, more meaningful times reading, reading her Bible. She's someone who regularly draws water from the wells of salvation. It's been a tough year for Rebecca. Her father had already died of cancer when she was a young child. And earlier this year, Rebecca's mother also died of cancer. Rebecca cared for her frail mum right to the very end. And one of my enduring memories of my visits to the family home is Rebecca's Bible open on the bed, normally at the Psalms. Through the darkest valley, Rebecca was drawing from the wells of salvation and she was helping her mum to do the same. And do you know what? That naturally overflows. I had the privilege of being at the bedside just a few minutes before her mother passed away. And as I slipped out of the room, I left Rebecca and her sister singing to her mum the praises of God. Her experience of God's salvation overflowed in praise, even in that moment. And not only personal praise, but also public proclamation. Rebecca, a few weeks later, stood at the graveside of her own mother, and she lifted her voice loud and clear for all to hear, to declare the hope of the gospel in the face of death. And the reason she did that is because she knew there were people there who weren't yet Christians and didn't know Jesus. No one told her to do evangelism that day. It was just a natural overflow. And it hasn't stopped flowing over either. Just recently, Rebecca has been bringing one of her neighbors to church. It's a family from a Muslim background that she's getting to know um, in the same block of flats. She doesn't even share a language with the mum, 
but that hasn't stopped her from sharing Jesus. Rebecca hasn't had any special training. By nature, she's quiet and reserved. But she's someone who draws joyfully from the wells of salvation, and that overflows in praise and proclamation. Anna is another member at Silver Street. She's a Turkish lady in her 60s who uh, suffers from um, fibromyalgia alongside a whole range of other serious health conditions. She is in constant, unmanageable pain, very rarely able to get out of the house, and sometimes she can't even get off the sofa, which has turned into her bed. Every morning she is woken up extremely early by her pain, and so what does she do? She draws from the wells of salvation. She's too unwell, actually, to be able to read, but she listens to audio Bible, or she listens to sermons. And do you know what happens? It overflows. I visited Anna recently. There were, there were tears brimming in her eyes as she described the unbearable pain that she goes through day by day. But when I asked her about her relationship with the Lord, the tears turned to a twinkle. And she said, oh, wonderful. Wonderful, she says. Thank you, dear God. Thank you. Wonderful. She drinks deeply of God, her Savior, and it overflows in praise. And not just personal praise, but also public proclamation. She is basically housebound, but it doesn't stop her. Her neighbors definitely know that she's a Christian. And each morning she updates her WhatsApp story with a verse that she's read in both English and Turkish so that all of her contacts can read it. Anna has a pretty mystical church background. You wouldn't describe her as a theologian, but she is a natural evangelist because she loves Jesus. And she makes the most of every opportunity. In fact, one of the few things that she does have to go out of the house for is hospital appointments. <laughs> and so that's her opportunity. She fills her bag with flyers, and she just, you can't keep her quiet. I've seen her in hospitals witnessing to staff, witnessing to patients, whoever's around her. In fact, one of our other members first came to church having met Anna at a cancer clinic. Friends, that is how we are going to reach the people around us with the good news of Jesus that they so desperately need. As we abide in Jesus, we will bear much fruit. As we draw joyfully from the wells of salvation, that will overflow in personal praise and also in public proclamation. So let's bow our heads and ask for God's help in that. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for all that you have done for us in and through our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that is ours at the cross. That as we trust in you, we can know that the anger that we deserve to fall on us has been turned away and you have comforted us. Thank you that that distance in our relationship is no more. We are nuzzled into the arms of God. You are a refuge around us. And we know that that, that day that we still long for will come, that day of full salvation where you will, in all of your fullness, bring about all that you have promised. Our Father, until that day, would you please help us to be those who grasp something of the joy of the salvation that you have won for us. And would that naturally overflow into praise and to proclamation to others. 
We pray this for the glory of your name and for the extension of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.